welcome to the October 2007 podcast of Ordinary Means. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here today with Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. Good to see you, Matt. Good to see you too, Sean. Always good to see you. But of course, the people listening can't see us. Thankfully. 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 Sean and I both have faces for radio. That's why there's no (laughs) pictures on the website. That's right. That is the case, isn't it? Oh, well, today, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about sanctification by grace today. Sanctification by grace. Now, I understand that by grace part. Uh, I think I've, I've heard the word grace enough. Um, I'm, I go to church on Sunday. I hear people all the time talking about, oh, it's only by grace. It's only by grace. But this word sanctification, that's a little bit, uh, that's a little bit trickier. What are you talking about when you're talking about sanctification? Generally speaking, when Christians talk about sanctification, we're talking about that process, um, that happens over the course of the lifetime of a Christian after they're converted, after the Spirit has transformed them, brought them from death to life, and the Spirit dwells within them, that that same Holy Spirit is at work in them uh, through the Word to uh, see them practically change in the way that they live, uh, to become more holy, to become uh, people who more and more obey rather than disobey, where obedience doesn't occur to us uh, as a non-believer. Hopefully, as a believer, it becomes increasingly irrelevant to us to disobey. Our instinct is to obey rather than disobey when it was the reverse as a non-believer. And so that's that process of sanctification. We distinguish it from justification. Our catechism reminds us that justification is an act Uh, It's a one-time deal when the Spirit comes in and renovates somebody's heart and grants them a new heart. They turn from their sins and initial repentance unto life, and they trust in Christ. They renounce any hope that they have and any righteousness of their own, any opportunity to have acceptance with God, accepted by Christ. And so they turn from their own righteousness, and they turn to Christ. And that's where we say a person is, is converted. That's an, and, and when they place their faith, their faith in Christ, they're justified before God. That's justification by faith, by reaching outside of oneself and trusting in Christ as one's only hope uh, of acceptance with God. And so that justification is that one-time declaration of God that this person is righteous in God's sight, not for what they've done, but only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to them person's sin imputed to Christ is 2 Corinthians 5.21. The person's sin is imputed to Christ, the righteousness of Christ, his living perfectly before his Father, always seeking to glorify his Father, as I read this morning in my devotions in John 9. Uh, that perfect keeping of the law imputed to us. And for that righteousness of Christ imputed to us, we are declared righteous by the Father and justified. It's an act. It's a one-time deal. So, so to sum up, justification is that first act. Justification would be associated with conversion. Uh, Justification is what most Christians would call being saved. Right. It is that point where we are declared righteous in the Beloved, in the Son of God. Uh, As you said, His righteousness becomes our righteousness. So from that point on, once saved, always saved, uh, if we have truly, uh, by the the inward working of the Spirit, believed upon Jesus... Uh, we will never depart from him. Right. Uh, so it's that first justification is that first moment we, where we are declared righteous. Right. Sanctification is that continuing work of the Spirit where we are made righteous uh, inherently. It's a process. Yeah. It's begun. And then there's a third piece to that. We say justification is the first piece, sanctification is the second piece, and then glorification is when the Lord returns or when we go up to heaven, he will make us completely new. As First John says, we, we don't know what we will be like, but we know we will be like him, Jesus. We will be righteous like him because we will see him as he is. And, and amazingly... Now, this is a, a, a quite mind-blowing concept about God. It's one of my favorite things to meditate ab- on about God and his righteousness, is that uh, it doesn't even occur to God to sin. It, it's, not in his, it's not in his frame of reference for God to sin. And glorified, it won't be within our frame of reference either. It won't occur to us to sin. But while still in the body... 
not yet glorified, we're in the process of losing our taste for sin and in the process of gaining our taste for righteousness, for the goodness of it, and for uh, wanting to do it because we're thankful. Um, I think that that is one of the prime reasons why I wanted to consider this topic this time is that I find as a pastor, and as, uh, I'll be with some college students next week, um, that one of the prime difficulties I see with Christians living their lives uh, is a wrong view of sanctification, that they tend to view sanctification as though not formally theologically, as we've thought about in this podcast the few previous times in terms of the Federal Vision or the Auburn Avenue theology, where there's a formal theological um, uh, structure that says one has to maintain their their covenant justification. That formal theological system says that, but practically many of the people in our churches misunderstand what they've been granted in justification. And they think practically day by day, God will be happy with me if I. If I do this or if I do that. So we say if, that we say salvation is by grace, but sanctification is by my working harder. Is by my working harder. And, and the real danger of this, as you mentioned, this is something that we do, churches do, without even realizing that we're doing it. Is, is that pastors get into the pulpit. I mean, you and I are guilty of this. If I may confess your sins yes, for you, I'll yes, confess my do. sins. Please do, because I've done I'm it too many times. Is getting up in the pulpit and preaching as if, if, my peop- if the people in the congregation would just try harder. Don't you people get this? If you just try harder, then, then you can have that daily devotion. If, if you just uh, try harder, then you can love that unlovable person in your life. When in reality, trying harder isn't going to cut it. No. The only thing that's going to get you from not wanting to love that unloving person to loving that unloving person is the grace of God. Absolutely. And so salvation is by grace, but our sanctification, our growth, really another phrase or term for sanctification would be growth in grace. Growth in grace, absolutely. The the best book, in my opinion, there are many presentations of what we're going to talk about today, but the one that I think that is most uh, robust in its view and helpful uh, is by um, the, the uh, president of the seminary for our denomination. Brian Chappell's book, Holiness by Grace, I believe is a good exposition of what we're going to talk about today. Um, there are different people who try to go at this from different angles. Jerry Bridges has a good book, Transforming Grace. Um, for its its faults, World Harvest Mission has its sonship material. There are a lot of people who have tried to address this topic of how holiness comes about in the life of the Christian. Um, but the starting place has got to be the same starting place as salvation, which is, I can't do this. And uh, a lot of times, that's not actually what gets communicated by pastors, uh, especially in an era when much of what goes on in the church is more informed by the business community and, and by self-help movements. Notice the first part of that word, self-help, hmm. that much of American even Western culture, especially with our hyper-individualism, is really focused upon us and our ability. And if we just realized what our innate capability is, we could do it. And Jesus is very opposed to this kind of thing. This is never the way that holiness is talked about in the Bible. It's never talked about as something you can do, and it's never talked about as something that you ought to do to try and stay in good with God. Instead, it's talked about as something that's a response. It's something that, that grows out of, out of thankfulness. I think when we, when we think about uh, holiness, what we need to not forget is what Jesus teaches in John 15, that this uh, union with Christ, this being united to Christ's life and his perfect righteousness, being united to Christ in his death uh, for sinners, this union with Christ 
is lifelong. It's not that we just sort of need Christ at the beginning or that unbelievers need Christ or they need the work of the Spirit. It's that we need the work of the Spirit. I'll just remind you of John fifteen five. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Now, this is what we want, right, Sean? This is what we want in the yeah. lives of our people. We oh, want yeah. them we to want bear much fruit. Bearing fruit. Okay? We want them to bear the fruit of the Spirit. We want them to bear fruit in, in evangelism and witness. We want them to bear fruit in holiness of life, in walking in God's ways, according to his commands. But, but the last phrase... But there's, a, there's an order here, isn't there? There is an order. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And for for quite a long time... This has been one of my personal ministry dictums for myself, as well as what I've tried to, to teach to others. The more I believe John fifteen five, the better my holiness goes. The more I believe I can't do it, the better it goes. Because what that does is it throws me off of myself and throws me onto dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And I say, Lord, I can't do this. Let's go back. Go back to that verse for just a minute. Um, I, I think your point is made not only there at the end, where it's very clear yeah. that apart from, from me, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. In this whole concept of abiding, yeah. the verse does not say, "He, if you bear much fruit, I will abide in you." Absolutely. And yet, that's how we live our lives. Yeah. If you just if you just do what I what I'm calling you to do, Jesus says to us, you know, if you just uh, obey me, then I will abide in you. Right. No, the verse says, "If you abide in me." Then you will bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. It's re-emphasizing the, the last phrase is re-emphasizing the first phrase, therefore making it perfectly clear that this cannot be on the basis of willpower. Right. Uh, this is not on the basis of my trying harder. Right. This Absolutely. is not on the basis of my pulling myself up by my bootstraps. Mm-hmm. And so when we read that, then. When we think about other verses, Jesus says, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, now, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Is it not that he's trying to get his disciples to see they cannot be perfect, as John 15 tells us, apart from him? Apart from him. Absolutely. Absolutely. And not just that not just that imputed righteousness. Almost nobody, perhaps nobody in my congregation would say, I can get to heaven on my own. But too many of them are convinced that they are able to accomplish a modicum of holiness without prayer, simply by effort. And, uh, and that's a great danger, because th- that is never the way that God intended us to think. Uh, about holiness. Let's talk about maybe the motive for holiness. Wait, hold, before we go into motive, I, okay. I think you, you make a, a very good point here about why why we're even doing this podcast. This podcast is called Ordinary Means. Right. And the whole emphasis uh, behind what we're doing is that for too long we've trusted for our sanctification hmm. in things we shouldn't be trusting in. In for our sanctification. You mentioned business models earlier, but I'm struck as I walk into Christian bookstores today by all of the fads and all of the different church planting models Mm -hmm. and all of the different things where they say, you know, this was successful in this church. And if, if your little church just does this program, you know, if you just send us your four hundred dollars and and you get this program, and if you faithfully follow this program, you will grow by X percentage in the next six months to a year, and you'll be just like us, the big church. We want a formula that will work. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, that's not the way God works. Absolutely. Not. I, I was just uh, just looking earlier here at First Corinthians, um, in the beginning of First Corinthians. He makes this, Paul makes this point. Let's see if I can uh, turn.
turn here. I don't have it right in front of me. Um, he says, for since the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Okay, when we're talking about these models, these fads, these different Christian programs to create uh, and, and to build the church, so often what we have is the wisdom of the world mm-hmm. being applied within the construct of God's institution. God's institution, more often than not, is not an organization, it's an organism. Mm-hmm. The church is, to use uh, to use a popular term today, the church is organic. Absolutely, uh, it's functioning. It's made up of living stones. Exactly, as 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 Peter tells us. Mm-hmm. So Paul goes on here in First Corinthians chapter one to say this: since the wisdom through the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. See, this is what we're talking about when we talk about the ordinary means mm-hmm. through the foolishness of praying. People grow <laughs> through the foolishness of of sitting in a pew and listening to some guy ramble on about Jesus for an hour every Sunday. For the foolishness of sitting at a table where bread and wine are made to represent something that's not even there. Right. Physically. Physically. Yeah. And and you look at these from a human perspective, from the world's perspective. Foolish. Absolute foolish. Absolutely foolish. But you look at it from God's perspective. And what does prayer say? Prayer says, Jesus, I trust you. I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And so I'm on my knees right now. Right. What does a sermon say when we sit there and we faithfully are listening to the sermon? We're saying, I don't know what to do next. Jesus, would you speak to me by your spirit through the sermon this morning? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, what does the supper do? It reaffirms our faith, and we come to that table saying, Jesus, I can't do this. That's why I'm coming back here, because you did it for me. You paid the penalty for me on that cross. Right, right. And I think that when people misunderstand sanctification, we'll get back to motive in a minute. When people misunderstand how sanctification happens, um, they're really stunted in their growth. I find that the, a couple of common misunderstandings yield in the people that I've worked with over 15 years of ministry. One of those is, it's too hard. What I'm looking at that needs to change, I've been doing for 20 plus years. I know it's wrong. I know that the way that I uh, talk to my children is is rude it's not gentle. It's not respectful. Um, but you know what? It's just I've just been doing it too long. For me to completely rethink the way that I verbally communicate with my children is just too hard. It, it's not going to change. It's not even worth it. And then on the other hand, sort of on the other part of a schizophrenic mind, we'll go, um, well, this little thing, I, I think I can get my arms around this. If if I work hard at this, I bet that I can beat this. Yeah, I, b- I bet I could come up with a form in Microsoft Word, or I, you know, if I just buy a Palm Pilot, I can, uh, I can, I can stop doing, I can stop doing X by sheer willpower. And what we end up with is a growing self righteousness over the things that I have managed to manage. Yes. And a growing hopelessness over the things which I know I can't do. Let me give you give us an illustration of this. Um, uh, I had a chance just recently to talk with uh, some young people who were, who were thinking about marriage. And, you know, it was one of these circumstances where, uh, in fact, it was, it was in Latvia when uh, I was in uh, the Baltic states in Latvia, uh, Riga, Latvia, with a team from our church just recently. And I was talking with some young people there, and in Latvia, the population is quickly declining. People are leaving Latvia like crazy. And so a lot of the young people are really concerned, uh, and there's a real stigma if you're not married by the age of 30. 
hmm. that you may never find someone. Okay. And so uh, I was sit, sitting down talking to some of these young people who, who were very concerned. They were single, very concerned about this. And I shared with them uh, this illustration, and that is that, that so often what God wants us to do when we're single and when we're looking for a spouse is to learn to trust him hmm. and not to trust in finding a spouse. Hmm. Because when we trust in finding a spouse, what we're doing is we're building an idol. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And and we're actually shaping an idol out of our future spouse, whether we know who that person is or not. Yep, yep. And so I said to them, I said, you know, often what God does is this. He waits until we've completely resigned ourselves to singleness before he says, oh, and by the way, here's someone right. for you. Yeah. Now, the same thing is true of our sanctification. Mm. God wants us to resign ourselves to helplessness. Mm-hmm. He wants us to see the pitifulness of our, of our human nature, of our flesh. Mm-hmm. He, he wants us to see that we can't do it. But then he loves to see that. David says, the broken and contrite spirit he will not despise. Mm-hmm. And so when we are that broken before God and we say, God, I can't do this. I can't parent my kids the way you call me to parent my kids. I can't, as a pastor, love my congregation the way you call me to love my congregation. When we get to that point, then he says, good, that's where I want you to be. Right. Because when you're weak, then I'm strong. That's what that whole verse is about, about weakness and strength, Mm -hmm. is when we are weak, when we're on our knees, he is strong. And it's at that point that his spirit comes and grants us the grace to take the next step and the next step and the next step. Right. Right. It's recently I've been preaching through them at the very end of Mark's gospel and uh, this particular Sunday that's uh, coming up from when we're recording this podcast. Uh, we're going to look at at Peter's absolute failure in uh, at the end of Jesus' life when he's confronted three times in the courtyard of the high priest's house and he denies Christ. And this is the, the guy who just hours before said, "Well, all these schlubs, all these other apostles here now they may they may fall away, but not me, Jesus. I'm in it all the way to the death." I will never deny you. He I will says. never deny you. And um, and what we find in Peter is, uh, and and this might be controversial, and we'll probably get comments on the blog about it. We find self esteem. Hmm. We find self confidence in Peter. I can handle this. I I got this one sewn up, Jesus. Now the reason. Before you slam our blog with comments that I say that is because I'm somebody who highly struggles with this. Is that the Lord has been teaching me over the last at least six months that if I don't pray about something, an interaction, a podcast, uh, a conversation, an interaction with my children, if I don't pray about something... Essentially, what I'm saying to God is, I got this one sewed up. No help needed here. I I got this one taken care of, Jesus. You can take a little rest. I can do it. That was the first sin. It was. I mean, that was the, that was the sin of Adam and Eve. It is, and we it, can we can be God. We yeah. We can be in control. We can we can charge. do it. Yep. Yeah. We can get her done. <laughs> and <laughs> to, uh, so why on earth are we thinking in the church about sanctification as if it's something we can do? It's it that's pride. It is. It it absolutely is. Um, one man for those pastors that that listen to the podcast, one one man who's been influential in my preaching said that it. it, it and this is a rough quote. If people walk out of your church on a Sunday thinking that they can follow the commands of God themselves, you've betrayed them. Because God is seeking to teach them that they can't. 
No, that's no. why they need Jesus. Could you just say that again? I think we need to reiterate <laughs> that just so that drives home. Maybe we'll 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 print that on the blog. Say that. If, say that sentence. If again. if people leave a church on a Sunday after having heard their pastor preach, thinking they can keep the commands of God then the pastor has betrayed them because God is trying to convince them that they can't. You know, when I think about the gospel and defining the gospel, we think about the gospel as a message, as, as, as a good message. It's, a, it's good news. But first, the gospel brings us bad news. Absolutely. Because the gospel is a message that we are sinners. And so much of us, particularly in the Reformed world, whatever that means, the Reformed world, this the Reformed bubble, we're very, um, we very commonly say, hey, I'm a sinner. We don't have a lot of problem with that language, but have we really thought about what that means? You know, that means that my thought life, I don't really want you to know what my thought life is like, and and we my, don't want to we don't want to put a recording of your thought life on the you, we, on the blog. Show? We're not we're not putting that up there. Not going to do it. Uh, we're not going to put out a a viewing of my my speech life in you know, private, particularly in private in particular. Uh, we're not going to mine know, either. Put out there. Yeah, we're not going to put out there a a an advertisement for exactly what I'm doing or not doing. My sins of omission or commission. You know, Martin Luther, bless his, bless his Lutheran heart. Um, Proto-Lutheran. Proto-Lutheran heart. <laughs> Martin Luther, you, you, you know, you're familiar with his simple way to pray, the, the, mm-hmm. the yep. little booklet he wrote for his barber, uh, because his barber asked him, how do you pray? And one of the things that Luther talks about in there is going through the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. And I know for most of us, if we were to read the Ten Commandments, we get at least through the first three or four thinking, this has nothing to do with me. You know, this idea of having another god before God, you know, that's something the pagans did. You know, that's a barbarian thing. Uh, you know, fashioning an idol, you know, I, I don't own any tiki's. <laughs> you, you know what's what's going on with that? You know we don't think about these things, but um, you know perhaps taking the Lord's name in vain is getting a little bit closer to, closer to home for some people. But then you get to the fourth, keeping the Sabbath holy, and you know a lot of Christians are pretty good about showing up in church every Sunday, so that's not a big deal. But what Luther did is he said to his barber, he said, "You've got to take each of these individually." And you've got to meditate on this command and think about the depths and the breadth of this command and think about the fact that when God says, don't put any other gods before me, he means anything that could be counted as a God. That I don't center my life on anything but God. And the fact is, when we think about it from that angle... Oh, we've commit we've committed those crimes. Oh yeah, no so doubt. So what we what we lack today, it seems to me, in the church are Christians who are really broken over their sin. Absolutely. Can I trace Peter's life from? That oh, absolutely, point? absolutely. So if you trace Peter's life from um, the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper in in the uh, the upper room. So this is uh, you know this is uh, Thursday night. The way we would count time Thursday night, uh, from that time when Jesus predicts that all of them are going to fall away, um, some hours later, probably between 10 and 3, Peter denies Jesus three times into Friday morning. But after he denies Jesus three times, the gospel writers point out in various ways that, that Jesus threw, or that Peter threw down and wept. Luke tells us that he wept bitterly. Um, he was um, that that way that David, having done the same thing, thrown down and wept after being confronted by Nathan, talks about crushed in spirit. And the way that I'm going to teach this on Sunday, that that we need to think about this is that mourning is a gate 
and it's the gate to fruitfulness. It's the gate to sanctification, and it's not a gate we go through once. It's a gate we go through every day. Because a morning tells me I'm reawakened when I sin to the fact that I can't do it. And that's a new instance of mourning. And we don't like this. Ian Duga taught us this in, in, in Old Testament when we were in seminary. Sean and I, uh, Ian Duggett, who's a friend of ours, um, taught us that as Americans, we don't lament. We hate it. We, we, look, we avoid lamentations as a book of the Bible with all that we are because we just want to be happy-go-lucky. We don't want to go through the gate of mourning. And yet authentic repentance that leads to authentic sanctification is going through the gate of mourning all the time. The structure of the Heidelberg Catechism has been very influential in my thinking about sanctification. Uh, some of you are familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism. It was one of the teaching tools that came out of the Reformation. It, catechisms are in a question and answer format, and they're designed to teach the basics of the faith to the people of God. And the Heidelberg Catechism, if I were to just give you the thumbnail sketch, the headings are a little different than this, follows this sequence. Guilt, grace, gratitude. And then Jeff Thomas, who's a Reformed Baptist preacher in uh, Wales, has added one to the end of that, which I think is great, which is goodness. Guilt, grace, gratitude, goodness. In many of the Continental Reformed churches that use the Heidelberg Catechism, they will go through the whole catechism in the evening service on Sunday each year to remind people, and your worship services, as we've talked about in the past, should follow this guilt, grace, gratitude, goodness pattern so that each Sunday, even each year in the structure of what we cover, we're getting that repentance and faith is not, as Spurgeon put it, is not the act of an instant, but the acquisition of a lifestyle. That we're constantly going through the gate of mourning because it's our re-recognition of our guilt. It's our re-recognition, I can't do this, that sends us to Christ's spirit to say, would you work in me so that I would? And not that I would so that I can get right with God, but I can't believe even though I've seen again how great a sinner I am, that God, you've made me right with you, not based on how I've screwed up and not done right, but on how your son did right. And would you work in me, Holy Spirit, that I might do right out of thankfulness? Would you help me do goodness? And I think that that's the, that's the pattern of sanctification that the scripture lays out for us. It's always a response to what God's done. It's not an attempt to get right with God. Yeah, that, that is uh, very important to remember that it's sanctification really is a result of God's continuing work in your life. Even with Peter, the example you just gave of Peter. Yeah. Jesus knew what Peter needed. Absolutely. Peter was very much into himself. Mm -hmm. He was a strong-headed man. He was a leader among men. And for that reason, Jesus knew, knowing Peter's heart, knew that Peter needed to be broken. And as a result of Peter being broken, Peter was sanctified. Yeah, if you go on in Peter's life... Did I cut you off? No, you say no. That's... If you go on in Peter's life, Peter has self-confidence fails, goes through the gate of mourning, weeping bitterly. And the next place that Peter shows up, besides the resurrection appearances of Christ and Christ restoring him, John's Gospel in particular, the next place we find Peter is in Acts. And Peter and John are arrested for preaching Christ in Jerusalem. And they're released because they can't figure out how it is that they ought to punish them, the Jerusalem authorities. And so Peter and John go back. This is uh, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. And let, let me read this because it's, it's, uh, it's wonderful to see the utter transformation in Peter that God brought about. On their release, this is Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And then begins a quote of the prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said, 
You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spoke the word, the Holy Spirit, and spoke the word of God boldly. Notice the dramatic difference in Peter. He goes through the gate of mourning. He recognizes, I can't do this. In a highly pressurized situation, in the next chapter, they're going to get flogged for preaching Christ. Highly pressurized situation, he's brought to the end of himself and he says, Lord, can't get this done. Enable your servants to speak with boldness. That, to me, is the fundamental form of sanctification, is that uh, if you go back to those those. Twin results uh, that happen when people misunderstand sanctification. They think they can manage the small stuff, so they don't. Then they might be able to manage it. They might be able to transfer their idolatry from one thing to another, and so they sort of manage the small stuff, and they never even seek to see the transformation of the big stuff because they know they can. They can't do it, and they never come and say, "Lord, this is what you call me to," and I know I can't do it. So would you enable me to? Would you make me willing to see my heart as it is, how evil and wicked it actually is? Because I've got confidence before you that irrelevant of what I uncover in my heart, no matter what the idols are there that I'm following that cause me to do why, that I know that I have a permanent standing with you, not based on the state of my heart, not based on how good I've done or how I'm doing right now or how I'm going to do tomorrow, but based on Jesus. And so I'm willing to look at how ugly my heart actually is because you've already solved that for me through Jesus. And so would you make me willing? Would you make me, would you enable me to change from the inside out? Would you break down my self-confidence? Absolutely. Which, of course, is a scary prayer to pray. Absolutely. Because when you pray, God, break down my self-confidence, he's going to give you a Peter situation. He's going to give you a situation where you're going to do something that's going to take you through the gate of mourning. Absolutely. You're going to be in in a situation where you will be forced to admit that you can't do it. It's like, you know, Lord, grant me patience with my kids. Yeah. You know, you you pray for that and you're, uh, you're a goner. I didn't tell Sean I was going to tell this story, and I think I've shared this with him before, but I'll tell you a little story about Sean and I. Um, Uh Uh-oh. Sean and I came out of seminary at about the same time, and we entered our churches about six months apart. Sean came into the pastorate um, dependent. Matt came into the pastorate independent. Sean, God brought Sean into a church that was in a uh, a phase of growth, a phase of blessing, and it was precisely what Sean needed to help him see that God could use him. Matt came into a church that God has used to show him that he can't do it. And both of us got precisely what we needed. Sean got from God a reassurance that indeed he could be used. And my, Matt got a lesson from God that he can't do it. And that has been uh, a great blessing over these years to me, because I am Peter. And I think I can do it, because I always have. But I'm wrong. And I think that God wants to take every Christian on a Peter journey. Because that's the point of sanctification, is to realize that you can't do it. I have to say it is a blessing, such a blessing, to know that Christ is with us always, even until the end of the age. Absolutely. Because 
when you do come to that point, and I mean, you mentioned that I came in uh, depending. No, I, I certainly I was. You weren't I, as confident I had, as I was. That's for <laughs> sure. I know that. But but you know when you come into a situation and things are going well, then the pride just wells up within you, and then you think, oh, I I've done pretty well. And it's then that it got. I think it's cyclical. Absolutely. Then God says, "Oh, you think you know, you're up to pride again? Okay, let me break you down." And then you come to, <laughs> come down low, and you realize, "Oh, I can't do this." And you know, and and which is where I'm at right now is I I can't I can't do this. And and then you know I'm just waiting for the for the chart to to turn you know right. and a line on the chart to start going up again. Yeah. Um. But you know, God is good. He is with us. He's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And it's something that I think all pastors need to be reminded of because we get so lost in the trees Mm. of what's going on in the church that we forget the big picture of what God is doing. Overall. Uh, It's very easy. I mentioned I was in Latvia a few weeks ago. I was also in Peru last week. Um, by by God's grace, I was um, I was asked to participate in an assessment team for our uh, the missions organization of our denomination MTW, and uh, went down to assess some of the damage there from the earthquake. And one of the things that we saw is that the church is just struggling there. Hmm. The evangelical church, um, and there are some some PCAs, a Presbyterian church in in Peru. Mm-hmm. Uh, there that are just struggling to maintain. Hmm. And um, you, you say, Lord, why? You know, why? You, you would think, uh, the same thing in Latvia. In Latvia, it was the same way. The church, the evangelical church, the Reformed church, is struggling hmm. uh, to get by. And you say, Lord, why? And then, But you've got to step back and say, this is part of a bigger picture. Well, what God's and doing. God knows what he's doing with the nations. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, if you can support, and I'm not talking about financially, if you can support the missionaries that you know in your church by calling them, seeing what they need, going down and visiting them, take your family, next vacation, take your family and go to stay for a week with some missionary that you know in another country. I'm sure they would love to have you. I'm sure that they could put that put you to work for a week, and I'm sure that your family would have a better vacation than sure. they have, have ever had going to the beach. Right, right. Support them. You know, they, they don't see, in many countries, they do not see the wealth and the prosperity we see here, and because we're here and see the wealth and prosperity, we get comfortable we we it's invisible to us what they're struggling with yeah 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 Yeah. the um i think that one of the things that that uh has been interesting pastorally as i've tried to teach sanctification to people is that uh gratitude is the fuel that runs sanctification that if you think back um, to people who have uh, blessed your life tremendously and and then later they've come back with something very simple that they ask of you, uh, you uh, bend over backwards to do all that you can to do whatever they ask because you're so thankful for the way that they've blessed your life. Um, I think about my, my wife and... Um, how much she does to to keep our house in order and to um, to uh, be involved day by day, hours and hours each day, raising our children and schooling our children, and um, and and I'm so thankful that I come home and things are are organized and there's food on the table and the children are well taken care of and educated and and and, and I'm so thankful for all that she does and sometimes she feigns to ask me, can you? scrub the toilet or can you, you know, do this or that? And, and I'm thankful, so thankful for her that I'm like, of course, what? <laughs> absolutely anything to help because I'm so thankful for all that you do. Why, why wouldn't I? And to me, the fight in the Christian life 
is to maintain thankfulness. And yet, I think that this is what God exactly wants. If you think about Exodus 20, and what Exodus 20 is mostly known for is, yeah, that's the place where the Ten Commandments are. But Exodus 20 doesn't begin with the Ten Commandments. Uh, It's not as though God came into Egypt and he said, keep these rules, and if you do good, I'll liberate you. I'll take you out from slavery. That's not what he does. Instead, he comes and he gets them out of Egypt. He delivers them first. He sovereignly saves them. And then he says, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What is, what is God seeking to do there? He's seeking to remind them of what he's already done for them, how he's already blessed them enormously. And then he gives the law and the way that I that I tend to teach this because I think it's helpful to form their gratitude that you're thankful for deliverance here's how you can express your deli- your thankfulness to me here's how you can show that you understand that you've been loved first and that you want to love me you can love me by saying yes your commands are good we will keep them with joy Uh, And then in the New Testament, it's exactly the same pattern. In Romans 12, Paul's gone on for 11 chapters of describing uh, the gospel and how it applies to life. And he comes in Romans 12 in the beginning, and this is the hinge, if you will, of the book, where he turns from uh, doctrine, which is always practical, to practical, which always includes doctrine. But the the emphasis changes – But what he does is in these bridge verses of Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, to stay right with God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. No, that's not what he says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. Everything I've talked about for 11 chapters, that's God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So scripturally, the way that God sets up sanctification, the keeping of his commands, obedience, is its thankfulness. That's what the third part, if you read the the heading uh, of the original Heidelberg Catechism, the, the third part is of man's thankfulness. It's our gratitude, it's our thankfulness that we've been given this enormous, amazing grace from God. You know, I'm struck by the idea in scripture of remembrance hmm. and as it applies to to our thankfulness because uh, so often what happens you gave the illustration of being thankful for your wife and coming home and she asks you to clean the toilet and you say well of course well there's also another side to that coin and that is you come home and you've forgotten oh, oh, all yeah. that your wife has done for you and she says, I need you to take the kids for five minutes so I can get dinner ready. Right. Or so that I can take a breather. I need to lay down. My head hurts. Right. And if you come into that situation and you've forgotten, hmm. well, you know, then you're in for some, huh. ra- some wrath, perhaps. Huh. Uh, but, well, but, but I mean, I've been the one who's been working hard all day here. Exactly. And that is why so much of Scripture is filled with God saying, remember, Hmm. remember what I did, remember what I did. And so often our lack of thankfulness, which, as as you pointed out, leads to a lack of goodness. Mm -hmm. If we're not thankful, if we haven't resigned ourselves like the the woman who resigns herself to always being single and then God gives her the husband, we haven't resigned ourselves to being... Uh, incapable, and then God's going to make us able. But if we're still trying, to, rather, if we're still trying to do it, if we haven't resigned ourselves to that point of, I am nothing apart from Him. Apart from Him, I can do nothing. Mm-hmm. Then we're not going to be thankful because we've done it, of course, and we're not going to be good. Absolutely not. We're not going to see Him working through our lives. How? Many years of your life have you tried to read through one of those Bible programs, you know, daily Bible reading mm-hmm. programs. 
I'll tell you. Every year I've tried it. You can do it, Sean. You can do it. I just got to. And what it ends up being is, okay, I just got to skim these four chapters and then I can check it off on the on the little book, you know, the little bookmark. And then I can, you know, I can move on with my life. Whereas what God wants us to do, and this is the key, I really think, is if we come to that point that we're not thankful, that we're not seeing the fruit in our lives. Mm-hmm. The answer is not to try harder. The answer is to go back to faith. Hmm. The answer is to go back to our justification, to the gospel, to our salvation, to the to the, the good news yeah. that in Christ, by Christ, we are declared righteous in his sight. This is who you are. You are no one else but who Christ has made you. And when we go back there and have our hearts enlarged, by a view of the grace of God to us, uh, by a reminder of all of our sins that Jesus has covered, past, present, and future, mm-hmm. then we are reminded, then we are thankful, and it's then that we find these things working. And suddenly it's not, I've just got to read those four chapters in my Bible study. Right. It's, I can't wait. To be with God. To be with God today. It's interesting as as I've um which gets to motivation which I Absolutely. I no, no, it does get to motivation because I think that it, you know as 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 we want to be happy Americans we do avoid the gate of mourning. We avoid lamentation. We avoid our guilt. We say I'm a sinner. But we are not by and large in an increasing awareness of how much of a sinner I am and recognize that that's the most fatal thing that can happen in your Christian life. If you're a pastor, it's the most fatal thing that can happen in your ministry is that if you as a pastor are not in an increasing awareness of your innate sinfulness, then you will not be in an increasing awareness of the enormity of grace and grace will become a word that you use, but it will not be something that's amazing to you because it's not amazing personally to you. And your life will not exhibit incredible thankfulness that yields itself in, Lord, how may I serve you today? How I want to obey. How I want to serve your people because I'm so thankful. And so a guilt, grace, gratitude is not just how we begin. It is the cycle of the Christian life. It is the, it is the gate of mourning that I go through each morning, M-O-R-N-I-N-G, so that I recognize each day that grace is, ought to be yet more amazing. The cross is bigger to me today because I've sinned more and I've seen more of how big God's grace is in covering my sin. And so I have more thankfulness today than I did yesterday and more fuel for my goodness, for my holiness, for my sanctification. So it's all of faith. It's all of grace. It's mm-hmm. all dependent upon Christ. Mm-hmm. Let's, uh, let's imagine an objection that might come back. Okay. The person who comes to us and says, yes, but Paul says to Timothy... Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Is not Paul saying to Timothy, pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Is he not saying, Timothy, you need to work harder at being godly? How do, how do we respond to that? By itself, it could be taken that way. But if you notice carefully... In all that Paul writes, he begins with grace and he ends with grace. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul got and communicates in the structure of his communication that this is a by grace thing. Um, It is not as though sanctification is not work. Uh, The old Puritans used to call it the mortification of the flesh. This is not, we're not trying to say that holiness is this easy thing if you just have the right mindset about it. No, no it's, stinking, it's stinking hard work. Oh, yeah. Peter's prayer is, is Lord, 
to Lord, give us strength. Absolutely. Give us boldness. Enable your service. So that we might do something. Nothing. Exactly. And so um, the sanctification by grace is, is not sort of we sort of let go and let God because we're hopeful. It's that when I look at a particular sin that I'm committing, the motive for why I want to go after it is not, it's not, oh, if I don't deal with this, I'm going to be on the outs with God. Now, that'd be a misunderstanding of justification. You're in with God, not by what you do, but by what Christ did. So my motive in going after a sin in my life is I'm thankful. But the way that I go after it is I say, Lord, I have habitually responded in this situation with my children with anger. And I've done it for seven years, as long as I've had children. This is going to be one heck of a lot of work to change the way that I react in this situation. Lord, work in me by your word. Help me by your spirit. Uncover my heart and see why I don't respond with the fruit of the spirit that is patience, but instead respond with the sin uh, of an unrighteous anger in this situation. And there may well be a ton that has to become uncovered uh, before I start reacting with patience in the situation instead of anger. And it may be a lot of hard work. It may be in the moment when I'm tempted because that's what I've always done is to react with anger. It may be very hard in the moment where I need to just walk away and say, I need to walk away right now because my heart's not changed yet. I'm aware of how my heart needs to change so that my actions would be different and my beliefs would be different. But I'm not there yet. And I see that there is a lot of work by grace, by the Holy Spirit, through the word transforming my heart and my beliefs and my actions, uh, that the way that I actually act in a situation is different. And that's what we're shooting for. You know, so much today we see in people, though, an unwillingness. I'm seeing this more and more in American culture, an unwillingness to change. I, I mm. think part of it is the fact that we are living in postmodern culture. Mm-hmm. Modernity said we can do all these things. We can shoot the moon. You know, we can. We get, can bring out utopia ourselves. We can bring out utopia ourselves. So the postmodern culture is responding to that and saying, "Sorry, guys, you messed up." So there's a lot of despondency. Absolutely. There's a lot Hopelessness. of there's a lot of emo people in in postmodernism. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of of sadness now. And and so perhaps for postmoderns, it's going to be easier to say, for them to say, I can't do this, mm-hmm. and to admit an inability to do it. But what we're seeing, the, the turn that that is taking in, uh, in the world that we live in, is that people are saying, not only can I not do this, but there is no way that I ever could do it. It's impossible. It's impossible. No one's ever done it, including and, me. Exactly. And so, you know, let's say I'm, I'm depressed. Mm-hmm. Instead of dealing with that and dealing with the causes of that depression, I'm more likely in this world today to go to my doctor and get a pill. Mm-hmm. Because nobody can fix me, so I might as well just take the pill that'll fix me. Right. Or... Um, trying to think of another example. Uh, you, you'd mentioned to me before we began the, the example of how our tendency today is just to blame. Oh, yeah, sure. That, that the reason that I do this uh, is because this is my ethnic background. I'm in our area, and I'm just going to pick on this because I, I've heard it, and I'm not trying to pick on all people of, of Italian descent, but I'm Italian, so I'm just hot-headed. And so we tend to say... Well, since I will, but the corollary of that is since I'm always Italian, and that's not going to stop. Not only am I not going to stop being hot-headed, but I couldn't possibly because I couldn't stop being Italian. Or if you knew my family situation, you would know why I act this way, and that it it's not even in the range that this could change. That's not even in the the range of conception that this would change if you knew 
my family situation. I can't tell you how many times I've heard uh, from people um, over the years of ministry. You'll see when you get into my situation, how impossible it actually is. Instead of a hopefulness of, by the power of the Holy Spirit, if we're walking in disobedience, God can change us. He can make me live differently by changing my heart. He can make my family life look differently by changing our hearts. You, you mentioned this con- the, this idea of ethnicity. We blame things on our ethnicity. You know, I'm right. sc- I'm Scottish, so I'm stubborn. Right. Okay. Well, I'm Jewish. Where did I'm ethnicity? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Where did ethnicity come from? Ethnicity came from Babel. Absolutely. What happens at Pentecost? Babel is reversed. Whereas at Babel, all the peoples of the earth were divided. Now God is bringing us together in unity. As citizens of one kingdom, right, and in heaven, once we are glorified, there's not going to be any more of those divisions. Right. And so if we're on that road now, we've got to, as Christians, set aside that kind of a thinking, mm-hmm. that I can't change, or that because of my family situation, because of my ethnicity, because of anything... I, I can't be different than I am. You can be different. The whole point is you're not who you're supposed to be right now. I'm not who I'm supposed to be. Matt, you're not who you're supposed to be. And so we want to be different. And Jesus is right now by his spirit working in us to make us different, to use the, the providential situations of our life, to use all things for the good of those who love him mm-hmm. and are called according to his purpose. See, that, that verse isn't for funerals. Romans eight twenty eight. Right. It's, it's for about, life. It's about sanctification. Yeah. It's about the fact that God is at work using every area of our life to make us more like his son, to conform us to the, to image, of the image of his son. And so that's why Paul, I mentioned the... Paul says to Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You, you made the very good point that Paul always uh, covers that with grace. Second, Second Timothy, chapter two, verse one. Paul begins speaking to Timothy. He says, "You therefore, my son, be strong. Just be strong, Timothy." Nope. He doesn't stop there. You mean it's not like Joshua? Just be strong and courageous. He says, "Be strong in the grace hmm. that is in Christ Amen. Jesus." And and that really that brings us sort of full circle. It brings us back to seeing that sanctification is not by my working harder. It's by my dependence. Mm -hmm. And that's what God wants. That's what he wants in the commandments. He wants you depending on him as your one and only God. He doesn't want you putting anything else as an idol before him. He doesn't want you taking his name in vain, but he wants you trusting in his name. And it's only as we do this, not again, not by trying harder, but it's only as we do this that we are truly walking in the gospel. And I, I wanted to close uh, our time by reading uh, to us from a passage that we're probably all familiar with, uh, but we haven't brought it up yet, and I, I think we need to include it in this podcast. And that's Romans 1, 16 and 17. Uh, this was a passage that was that was vital in the life of Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was vital in the course of the Reformation. So much is hanging on these verses. And in these verses, Paul says to the Romans this. He says, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Nobody is excluded here. Everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And then he goes on to explain the gospel. And he says this, he says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not our righteousness, not our doing good. The righteousness of God is revealed. And how is it revealed? He says, from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith faith. Sanctification is this process of growing up in the Lord through the course of our life, through the course of that, all the time after we've been converted, 
all the time since we've been saved to the time that Jesus comes again and glorifies us, all through that time, how do we live? Do we live by trying harder? No. We live by faith in him and his working in us. Amen. So thank you for joining us uh, this time around for this podcast. Thank you for being faithful listeners and for commenting on the blog and for all of the encouragement that you've given us to continue uh, getting together once a month and having this conversation. Uh, We thank you. And uh, we encourage you to check in at the website, uh, ordinarymeans.com, or at the blog, uh, ordinarymeans.blogspot.com, and leave your comments, leave your questions. And, and look for the books that we mentioned also yeah, on the blog. look for the so books. Those. Uh, those are a great way that we can uh, extend our reach by giving you resources that uh, you can be studying in the, over the course of uh, the years. So as we leave you today, may the Lord bless you as, by grace, you pursue him through his ordinary means. 